This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, where the questions get serious treatment, the hosts get put in their places, and the really good books get to have their say in the matter. Your hosts are Nathan Gilmore, Michael Farmer, and David Grubbs. It was pretty bright upon the rainbow bridge tonight. I could see into your window, although you're far away. You were racing in a Welcome, listeners, to yet another Christian Humanist podcast. Uh, I'm David Grubbs, professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas. With me this week, uh, as last week and so forth, is uh, Michael Farmer, uh, assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. It's hard for you to remember that I'm just an assistant professor, isn't it, David? You almost called me a professor because you assume everybody is as advanced as you are. No, no, it's just a more complicated title. It's two <laughs> words instead of one. You nice. know, when I first when I first got there, uh, they had associate professor on my door, and I asked them if I had been given a pay raise before <laughs> before I got there. Well, uh, maybe may, maybe you'll uh, you'll feel that uh, my uh, my particular title d- isn't necessarily as as great uh, when you realize it it doesn't accompany a pay raise. So yeah. and, and all the students call me professor anyway. So whatever. yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, who gets called assistant professor, really? To there was face. a movie. There was a movie, Wet Hot American Summer, where uh, there was a, an assistant professor of oh astrophysics or something. You know, it's a comedy, and he introduces himself as assistant professor Smith. <laughs> all right. Well, if, if you're going to be that self-conscious. Um, well, also with us is another uh, assistant professor, yes, um, of, English, of English, Nathan Gilmore from Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you this morning, Nathan? I'm doing pretty well. I didn't sleep a whole lot last night. Miriam was restless, but uh, feeling ready to do a podcast. Nathan's mm. punchy. Well, I, I really I, am. I really am. I, I'm honestly feeling a little punchy myself. This has been a good week, but a busy week. My uh, um, my wife's family are are uh, visiting us from Georgia, and we've been um, so I've been working uh, working until uh, the afternoon, and then taking off early in order to show them the wonders of our particular region of Kansas, which apparently includes prairie dogs. I did not know this, but. Um, I don't have to go to a zoo or a wildlife preserve to see prairie dogs. I just have to go out to the lo- to the parking lot of the Lowe's and look into the median of the highway. And there they are. What a crazy world you live in, David. I know, I know. It, you're you're like in northern not, exposure with that moose. I I guess, except this is Midwestern <laughs> exposure. Um, anyway, yeah. Uh, before we dive into our subject, which is one uh, beloved to my heart, and uh, I hope yours as well, um, what we got going on in the blog? I have a post about an incident in one of my classes uh, that I uh, solicited advice about. Right, and that post has not only gotten some good responses from readers, but also CWC, the radio show, featured it in their weekly podcast this week, which... Probably means we need to start reading Chris Geertz's blog and talking about it. It's true. <laughs> Although he's he's already had 5,000 visitors I saw today, which doesn't seem fair, because I'm not sure we've had 5,000 visitors. I don't think we have the ability to track... I know we can track individual pages, but I'm not sure I... I, I should look that up. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, though, Chris Geertz is a machine. Blog envy. Um, no, he, he, he he's... He's a very productive blogger. I um, I admire I admire that. We need to have um, him on while, while while I'm thinking about it. We need to have him on to discuss his new book. That would was actually it, be pretty cool. Was it called the the Pietist Impulse in Education? That sounds about right. Yeah, something about well, Pietism in Education. Well, particularly since um, well, I know at least two of us uh, are t- are teaching at schools that would connect their tradition more with that than they would with 
the Reformed tradition that so much of the you know thinking about Christian higher education books kind of assume. Right, although I don't think either of our schools qualify as a pietist school by his definition. I, okay. I think okay. I think he has a, a rather specific historical definition of pietism, although I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. I know that okay. he smacked down J, uh, James K. A. Smith. Well, about about the maybe, definition maybe, of pietism, and I don't want similar treatment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, I, I don't want I, to I, feel the sting of Chris Garrett's rapier wit. Well, that, yeah, I, I can understand that. Um, let's see. Any good uh, any good feedback we want to refer to? Uh, I noticed that there seems to be some more interest in putting up some kind of a great books discussion forum. Yes, and listeners, I will try to get to that sometime soon. As it turns out, the end of September is going to be a sprint for me. Uh, lots of deadlines for various written projects. Uh, but if I don't get it, if I don't get that site put up in September, I will try to do so in October. We'll get this thing rolling. Cool. Looking forward to it. Well, um, if that's all of our all of our chores done, and now we can we can go off and have our fun and watch our cartoons and what and drink chocolate milk. Um, our subject for conversation today is uh, libraries. Uh, this was suggested actually by by my wife. She works at the the college library here at Central, and I was casting about in my mind for for topics, and she said. Talk about libraries, because you love those. And I said, you know what? That's a great plan. Now, David, when she uh, comes home from work, does she take off her cat eyeglasses and take her hair down and shake it out? No. Because I've been led to believe that's what librarians do when they get off duty. Oh, uh, goodness. <laughs> she, she's not actually a full librarian. She's a, a, a an aide to the librarian. So How long do you have not- to work there before they give you the cat eyeglasses? I don't know. I don't know. There's some some kind of arcane librarian work pyramid. And, and, I don't and all, know. And everything involving librarians is arcane, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Arcane and hierarchical. Um. Anyway, I, I I'm assuming that you know because well, other variations aside, all three of us are readers and therefore people of the book, uh, so to speak. Um, so I'm assuming that at some point in your lives, as in mine, the place where all the books are became one of your favorite places to be. Um, so I guess we'll start with you, Michael. When did you first meet a library, and what was it love at first sight? I really loved the library when I was a kid. Yeah, my mother used to take me to the Lilburn Public Library in Lilburn, Georgia, and I would check out, you know, the Boxcar Children, or Encyclopedia Brown, or uh, Judy Bloom books, all sorts of stuff. I learned a lot about a lot of things I probably shouldn't have learned about from uh, Judy Bloom books, actually. Um, so yeah, I, I we we went to the library at least once a week, usually more, and I would check out you know fifteen or twenty books at a time, however many they would let us check out. And then <laughs> you know when I got to high school, I stopped going to the library, I, I and. Uh, I spent time in a library in college because I didn't have the internet, and I know we'll get to that, and the library did, and I, I did some studying in there. And then every now and then I would go to the public library in Omaha because it was a, a neat building, and it was quiet, and uh, I don't think I have been to a library since 2007, except, oh my. you know, from time to time I would go to the UGA library and check one out, check a book out for, for a class. And I, I did. Uh, I had to take my comp class to the uh, Crown Library last Thursday, two okay. Thursdays ago. But some of the series. Oh, what about you, Nathan? Uh, like Michael, I did uh, a lot of trips to the library as a kid. I, I actually tended towards the nonfiction section. I remember going through periods where I would check out every book on weaponry. I tended to favor the medieval over the modern. I remember periods where I would check out every book on various forms of animal life, sharks, insects, so on and so forth. Um, yeah, I mean, for me as a kid, you know, the nonfiction section was where the action was at. Actually, in high school, the public library, the same public library, was my first job as a teenager. Uh, so I spent a fair bit of time there uh, all the way through high school. And then when I would come home on breaks, uh, from college, I would 
work a few hours at the library, pick up a few bucks. So, uh, really, you know, in my younger life before I moved down south, you know, I spent really a lot of time at the Plainfield Public Library. You know, at the Milligan Library, it was a nice place. Uh, not a gigantic collection like a lot of small Christian college libraries. Uh, but the nice thing was we had limited, and I want to emphasize limited, borrowing p privileges over at Emmanuel School of Religion, the seminary there in Johnson City. Uh, uh, so really it was there that I discovered just how impressive a specialized collection could be. Uh, there was a librarian who was also a professor of New Testament who developed a world-renowned New, New Testament studies collection there at Emmanuel School of Religion, now Emmanuel Christian Seminary. And their claim to fame is they have one of the few facsimiles of the Codex Vaticanus in North America. Uh, while Vatican II was going on, the cardinals were all given a copy of the facsimile of Codex Vaticanus. There are only, I think, 150 produced. Uh, and basically, Buford Bryant, this professor of New Testament, wrote to the Vatican saying, what do I need to pay you to get one of those 150 copies? And actually acquired one for this small seminary in East Tennessee. So when, you know, for instance, you know, Bruce Metzger, the world-renowned New Testament sexual scholar, came to visit Emmanuel to deliver a lecture, he was immensely surprised that a book that he had never seen outside of Europe was here in East Tennessee, of all places. He had to take awesome. back what he'd said about you being a bunch of uh, illiterate hillbillies, huh? Well, you know, well, one of his grad students taught me Greek, so I, I, I think that he would say illiterate hillbillies except for Robert Hull. <laughs> uh, cool. Well, um, for myself, my, uh, uh, well, I would, I, I would have called her, uh, I, I, I called her a great aunt. She wasn't actually related to me. Uh, she was, uh, a former nun who, uh, ended up being my, uh, my father and his brother, their, their, their caretaker, um, uh, while, while, while they were, while they were children and continued to, uh, uh, live with my grandmother and be part of the family um, uh, until she died. My Aunt Catherine was a librarian, and she did have the cat glasses. Um, did so, she shake her hair down when she got home? No, I never saw her hair down. Uh, she was a, a tiny gray-haired old lady and a wonderful, wonderful person, but she was she was a librarian. I remember, I remember going to the Homewood, Alabama library with her, um, but I don't think at the time I had any notion of where I was. I re all I remember is the decorations in the children's section. I don't even remember noticing the books particularly. Um, it wasn't until I was probably seven or eight, um, when my parents started checking out books for me, uh, from the church library and it was Encyclopedia Brown's Michael. And that, you know, they brought me an Encyclopedia Brown, and I thought, this is the best thing I've ever read. Oh, yeah. Where did you, where did you get this? And ever after that, I haunted our church library. Um, and then I found public libraries later on, but um, I, I think I must have read pretty much everything in the children's section in that, in, in that church library. And everything except the fiction that looked too woman-y. Um, in the adult section. But, uh, yeah, that, that place was wonderful. Uh, but of course, when I was a kid, there was always a library, you know, there were always libraries somewhere and it became such a big part of my life that I couldn't imagine there being a world without a library. But of course, I mean, we know there had to have been such a world. Someone had to invent it. So Nathan, you're our, you're our, uh, material conditions guy. Yes. Um, uh, can you tell us something about the invention of the library and what conditions make a library possible? The main conditions that make a library possible are a relative degree of disposable wealth, talking culturally, and then a relative degree of political stability so that you can actually collect documents in a place. 
So in the ancient world, we're talking about places like Sumeria. We're talking about um, relatively small archives in Egypt. We're talking about uh, Ugarit, the great uh, Canaanite city. All of these places are sites of ancient libraries that we've actually discovered uh, by means of modern archaeology. And these libraries uh, are largely collections of civic documents, uh, government decrees, things like that, but they also contain things like the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Enuma Elish, all of these sorts of ancient literature, as we call them, uh, would have been simply mixed in with the other government documents. So it's a very different picture of things than the public libraries that we know of. That's largely a North American invention. I'll let Michael talk about that for a bit. When we roll on into the period of Greek dominance, uh, one of the great projects that Alexander the Great undertakes is to spread Greek civilization, Greek culture across uh, really the old Persian Empire. And by doing so, uh, he establishes the conditions by which one of the great libraries of the ancient world, the Library of Alexandria, uh, he establishes the conditions where it can rise. And really, that is sort of the archetypal library of the ancient world. You know, it is a place where they very intentionally seek out original copies of the great Greek thinkers, the great Egyptian scrolls. Uh, it's the place, famously, where the Hebrew scriptures get translated into Greek in the form that we know of as the Septuagint. Uh, it really is a place where, because of that great stability of the region, and um, you know, under the Ptolemy regime, uh, which really isn't disturbed until Caesar comes along. Uh, you know, it's a place and it's a time where they can collect all of these documents and they can assemble the knowledge of the human race. Uh, now, after the Roman Empire, you know, we're largely talking about monasteries because they tend to be sort of islands of stability away from the wars that are pretty much defining European life. Obviously, they're not entirely immune from invasion, as Anglo-Saxon chronicles tell us over and over. Uh, but, by and large, you know, the assembly of large libraries becomes a monastic thing in the medieval period. Now, once we get into the modern era, you know, this is where, you know, Michael will probably be more helpful than I am, but as far as the ancient world, the classical world, and the medieval world... You know, we're talking about a phenomenon that occurs wherever you can get away from wars long enough to have a library. That makes sense. Um, now, I still have some kind of lingering, nagging memory that I want to have explained to me. Uh, Michael, I don't remember a whole lot of American history that I learned back in school, but I do have some kind of dim rec recollection that Benjamin Franklin has something to do with libraries. I, apparently, he didn't invent them, not being Mesopotamian or whatever. So, um, where 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 am I getting this this nagging little memory from? Well, he has very little to do with the public library. He has okay. something to do with it, as we'll talk in a minute. But um, he he didn't invent the public library, and he didn't bring it to America. Uh, <laughs> some scholars say that the first American public library was founded in Boston in the 17th century, but the Boston public library that we know wasn't really around till the 19th century. So, I mean, th there was some sort of organization in Boston in the 17th century where it, a person could could borrow books, but it wasn't necessarily an organized library. Um, Franklin comes in because he had an intellectual group called the Junto, which you may remember if you read his autobiography. Uh, the Junto would get together and they would read academic papers and they would ask each other questions about politics and philosophy. Well, they ran into a problem. The conversations didn't go as smoothly as they might have because some of the participants would have more knowledge about certain areas than others would. The solution was to for all of them to have a library, but at the time, books were very, very expensive because you had to ship them from England. Mm. So not one of them, they were all middle class, not one of them could afford to have the sort of library that a gentleman needed to have, right? So the mm. solution was they pulled their resources together and they bought a common set of books. And what Franklin ended up founding, or more accurately, co-founding, is what's called a subscription library, in which you would pay a certain amount of money every month or every year, and then you would have access to the books in the library. It's much closer 
to the sort of database services that universities subscribe to than it is to public libraries. Now, the organization that the Junto founded, the, the, that subscription library is still around. It is called the Library Company of Philadelphia. And it is now mostly a research library that anybody can use for free. You just can't check the books out. So they have a lot of manuscripts there that date from Franklin's time and before. They have, uh, like, I think they have a copy of the Mayflower Compact. Things like that, important <coughs> documents for American history. I don't know how Franklin gets credit for having invented the public library, but that is certainly what the average person thinks he did. Uh, I will say that Franklin gets a lot of credit for inventing a lot of things he didn't invent. Uh, he, he's one of those guys to whom um, myths attach themselves. Just like Mark Twain is the guy who said everything funny in America, Benjamin Franklin is the guy who invented everything in America. He right. did, I mean, he did until, until you just now set me straight, Michael, I really did think that he inv invented the lending library. In fact, the only thing he had to do with the public library is that he, uh, he donated some books to a town in Massachusetts. Who named themselves? Uh, it's the town of Franklin, Massachusetts, is named after him, so that he would donate books to their library. I, I just can't believe they lied to me about things that the founding fathers did. I, that <laughs> just appalls me. They they could they only tell you the things all of them agreed on, right? Their their original intent. And maybe maybe Franklin's original intent was to found a public library, but couldn't uh, couldn't get it together. Yeah, maybe so. He he Not. didn't he didn't invent any kind of library. He didn't bring the public library to America. He he founded helped found. I, I shouldn't even say he founded because he was part of a, a rather large group that founded it, the first American subscription library. And the subscription okay. library is something that really doesn't exist so much anymore, as far as I know. Mm -hmm. Well, I I don't know. Maybe if maybe if we're if we're being generous, we could say that he played a role in what's. I don't know, it looks to me at least like some kind of an interim phase from moving from the the university or the private gentleman's library to something that the public has access to, the people who don't have resources for a big library. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't want to put Franklin down by any means. It's just he, he's been it – is a, it is a, it's a public misconception that he invented the public library, that's all, or brought it to America. Right. That, that's all. It's not his fault. <laughs> it's not like he went around saying he invented the public library. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, he did go around saying he'd done all kinds of things um, in his biography. I wasn't sure if that was one of those things that he claimed he did and people later were like, yeah, not so much. Or if that got made up on his behalf, probably by a mistake. I, 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 I've read the autobiography several times, not for, not for a while. But I don't remember him claiming to have to have invented the public library. Although he does talk about the Junto and their founding of the uh, of the uh, subscription library they they had. Okay, cool. Well, obviously we can't tell the stories of all the libraries. Um, we've mentioned a few. Um, it'd still be nice to pick, uh, you know, pick pick a few more. Um, Maybe uh, you guys have a historically important library in mind or maybe an important library to your field of study or a library that famous, famously ceased to exist. Um, if, you had to, if you had to kind of pick a library out of all of the libraries and say, this is one whose story I want to tell, what would you pick, Nathan? Well, one of them that I've found fascinating for a number of years is actually the library at Qumran. Uh, our listeners might know them better as the Dead Sea Scrolls community. Uh, they're often identified with the Essenes, the sect within Judaism in the last couple centuries before Christ, and you know the the century, the first century of the Christian era before they're wiped out in the Jewish wars. But one of the fascinating things about that is that they actually had a scriptorium, an area where they kept writings, and archaeologists have discovered that in fact. Each of the members of the community, uh, each of the male members anyway, they have found women skeletons there, so uh, they seem to have had some sort of monastic wives going on there. But each of the male members, we'll, we'll, we'll save that for the tabloids, uh, each of the male members had a stone uh, inscribed with his name. And what appears would happen, what is apparent, I'll put it that way, is that they would exchange that stone for temporary use of the scrolls in that Qumran library. Uh, so in other words, you know, as early as the 2nd century B.C., 
we've got something like library cards functioning uh, to where they could take one of the scrolls. Of course, they would take it into a room where people read out loud because silent reading really hadn't become a common practice yet. But as far as we can tell, their collection included not only what we think of as the Hebrew scriptures, but also books like First Enoch, uh, the War Scroll, the Community Rule, uh, all of these documents that we have discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls there in the caves at Qumran. Uh, so, I mean, if you think about the production of scrolls in the ancient world, like David said, very expensive business. Uh, but this was a place where these people who had founded this quasi-monastic community could, in fact, access a wealth of written materials, irrespective of the fact that they didn't have access to materials like a big synagogue or certainly the Jerusalem temple. So the Qumran community, the Dead Sea Scrolls Library, is the one that I would want to focus on. Uh, Michael, what library do you want to talk about for a bit? I'm going to talk about two. Um, I went on my honeymoon to New York City, and one of my deep regrets is that we didn't visit the New York Public Library, which is the largest in the country, and they've got multiple branches, like most big cities. But the main branch is the really famous one. It's on Fifth Avenue and 42nd Street, which is less than 10 blocks from where our hotel was, and yet we still didn't go. Uh, the architecture is really famous. It's uh, Beaux-Arts style, and so it's got these huge columns. And famously, there are two big stone lions out in front of it. I believe they're both named Leo. Inside, you have okay. like the Rose Reading Room, which is this enormous, beautiful room. It's the sort of thing you dream about if you like libraries. When I was a kid, I would dream of living in New York City on the Upper East Side, which is, of course, a long way from the library. And uh, I would dream of visiting the library every week. It's in a million movies and a million books, and it's pretty much the platonic ideal of what a library should look like, at least for me. Um, I still don't know why we didn't visit it, except we, we usually went uptown instead of downtown, and, and that's all I can think of. <laughs> Um, I also wanted to talk about a library I have visited, which is the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. And it, too, like almost every important building in D.C., has beautiful architecture and has a really beautiful reading room. But it's uh, it's nobody's home library. But You can't check books out. It's, it's mostly a research library. And, of course, they're famous for their ordering system, which the vast majority of colleges and universities use. It's also what Victoria and I use at home which is a terrifying <laughs> glimpse into my life. Um, the Library of Congress, of course, is also the home for American copyrights. So when you publish a book, two copies get sent to the Library of Congress. I assume two copies of Nathan's recent book were sent to the Library of Congress. Dude. But not all of those books, this is a misconception, not all of those books actually stay in the permanent collection. So uh, whether or not your book is in the Library of Congress is a matter of some debate, Nathan, but it was, it was probably sent there. Anyway, Library of Congress, hugely important to this country. Another beautiful building. Uh, I don't know what else to say about it. Hmm. Well, it, when, you, when you mentioned uh, something being the platonic ideal of a library, um, I, I don't know, the one that immediately leaped into my mind is that amazing library in Beauty and the Beast. Uh, you know, the, the Disney <laughs> I mean, you movie. Know, you, you know that's not real, right, David? I, I know that's not real. That's why we're talking about platonic ideals. <laughs> I talked about a real library. Okay. I know. I'm going to talk about a real library too, but you were, you're the one who brought up the platonic ideal. And when I imagine what would the greatest library in the world look like, it would be that tier upon tier of books with the ladders going in all directions in this kind of... A, a, libra know. a library is so good, she doesn't mind being kidnapped and tortured by a uh, wild animal. Yeah, yes, a library so good she doesn't notice how terrifying the situation she's in. Um, now, the one I wanted to bring up is uh, the the library of uh, Wearmouth and Jarrow. Uh, it was an abbey in uh, in Anglo-Saxon England. It was, in fact, uh, the monastery that uh, the Venerable Bede hung out in. There was a gentleman by the name of Benedict Biscop or Bishop, who hung out in uh oh the well in the mid 60s uh, 670s and 680s he took it upon himself to to make the best monastery in the world which included um what he what he hoped would be the best monastery library in the world and he went he went all over Europe uh collecting 
not only relics and art and artisans, but also books. Uh, he ended up with one of the one of the largest monastic libraries at the time, which is is for us actually kind of sad. It was several hundred books. Um, you know, we we I, I hear that and I think I have several hundred books. Yeah, in my office. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think I have two hundred in my office at school, and then three times that at home. Yeah, but then imagine that each of your several several hundred books is about the size of a phone book, and you know, written in parchment. And now, you know, now you're going to need a bigger room to put them in. I don't have to imagine that, David. You don't have to. No, I have painstakingly transcribed each of my books in uh, in calligraphy on vellum paper. Okay, I visited your house. Why did you not show me this? <laughs> anyway, yeah, so Benedict Biscop uh, collected this awesome, awesome, amazing library, uh, which includes the earliest surviving manuscript of a Latin Vulgate. Um, problem is that uh, Vikings burned it down uh, in the 800s. So... There are a whole lot of questions in, in my particular field, uh, the field of Anglo-Saxon studies, which depend on knowing well, what texts did scholars in a particular era have access to? What did they know? So that we know whether they just made that up or is it an illusion or whatever. It's, it's uh, incredibly difficult to know if you don't have a list of what they could read. And... We don't have that list. We don't have the catalog. We don't have the books. All we know is that this amazing library existed that was supposed to have been basically the, you know, the best one west of Rome. And uh, all we have about it is stories. And sometimes uh, I, I like to imagine what it would be like to Indiana Jones style find some sort of lost cache of, you know, lost cache of books and find out that. You know, I don't know, find out amazing treasures of knowledge and so forth. Anyway, but then again, many of many of my daydreams revolve around Indiana Jones-like discoveries. Um, but, usually libraries. So, <laughs> usually of libraries. I found the Library of Alexandria. I found the Library of, uh, you know, I found Cotton's Library. It didn't burn down. Um, or whatever. Anyway. Um, shifting from my daydreams about amazing libraries, um, Nathan, you have had the distinction of not only being a library patron, but also of being a librarian, um, presumably with cat glasses. So, <laughs> Did you shake your hair down at the end of the day, Nathan? <laughs> only if there is a photograph to prove that. <laughs> well, can, can you tell us what it's like on the other side of that library experience? Well, certainly. I mean, one thing to distinguish is that, you know, the modern profession of library science uh, is something that requires specialized training, usually involves a graduate degree. I've never gone to library school, even though one of my bosses that I'll mention here in a bit wanted me to so I could take over his library when he retired. Yeah. Um I, I did work, as I said, through high school at Plainfield Public Library. When I got to seminary, I got a part-time job at the seminary library. So I actually not only knew about that New Testament collection that I mentioned, but I actually built the shelves on which it now resides. Uh, so when I go back to that building, I always go back to those shelves and think of the 50-hour work weeks that I was putting in for $5.35 an hour. and Nathan Gilmore, <laughs> library carpenter. That's right, that's right. Uh, and then, of course, you know, I, I mentioned that I had done this when I came to Athens, Georgia and started at University of Georgia and started working at the Bogart Public Library. And in no time at all, they had ordered a new shelving unit for me to assemble. Uh, so I, you know, I have I have built library shelving. I've worked at libraries. I've done all of these things. One of the things that's that's really nice, especially about working in an academic library like a seminary library, is just the familiarity that I gathered with the collection. Uh, I definitely credit at least part of my breadth of interest in theological subjects to the fact that I worked at that seminary library for two years. Uh, you know, because I was 
reading shelves, reshelving books, uh, helping helping fellow students with research projects, not only in my own area of Old Testament studies, but also in New Testament studies and systematic theology, church history, pastoral ministry, all of these sorts of things. You know, I sort of became a theological generalist long before I became a literary generalist. So, you know, it's still one of those things where when I'm listening to homebrewed Christianity, when I'm listening to Christ the Center, when I'm listening to any of those theological podcasts, just about any topic that they bring up, I'm certainly not an expert in any of them because I tend not to be an expert in anything, but I can usually name a couple good books on whatever topic they're talking about. And that's just kind of a nice place to be because it is, you know, those years working in that seminary library, you know, gave me the ability to converse with specialists in the field, even though I'm not one. Uh, Now, I will say that, I mean, what the public library has that the seminary library does not is contact with the public. And even though I'm a person who, by and large, doesn't like people very much, uh, you know, that's actually something that was good for my soul for those seven years I was working at the Bogart Library is that I had to work with the most neurotic, irritating, paranoid, conspiracy theory people you've ever met in North Georgia. Uh, you know, I had to have conversations with them. I had to interact with them. And it sort of kept me from becoming the stereotypical University of Georgia Athens townie. You know, uh, I, I couldn't live my life pretending that Athens, Georgia was a micro microcosm of the larger world. Michael, you were going to jump in there? Yes, it is now time for you to tell us your number one library patron story. Oh, there are so many, Michael. Uh, <laughs> trying to think. I mean, you know, probably the one that sticks in my memory right now, just because it was a fairly recent one, is that uh, we had a patron, and I don't think he'd be listening to this, so I'll, I'll just go ahead and describe the story. If anyone's ever been to Bogart Library, they'll know who I'm talking about, uh, who was a nice enough person when his Tourette's wasn't flaring up, <laughs> but if, if, if his computer crossed him, uh, you could pretty much guarantee that mothers of small children would be dragging their kids out of the library in a hurry. <laughs> and beyond that, and I mean, this is, this is both sad and darkly funny, which is kind of how I enjoy life. Uh, but, uh, in the last couple of years that I was there, this patron, you know, um, unfortunately was diagnosed with, uh, colon ca- cancer, had to have a colostomy bag, but he couldn't pull himself away from the websites. And these are the sorts of websites that, again, if a mother of small children walked by, she'd be pulling her children out of there and we never could catch him. He'd always minimize his windows when a worker came around. So I, I just want to make your subtext clear here, Nathan, to make sure I know what you're talking about. You were suggesting that a borderline schizophrenic with a colostomy bag was looking at pornographic websites in the public library? Uh, not pornographic. It was more along the lines of mail-order Russian brides. Even better. Yes, yes. <laughs> at any rate, he couldn't pull himself away from this site long enough to empty his bag one day. I actually popped out, you know, to drive down to, I think, the local Chinese restaurant to get myself some takeout. When I came back, there was a sign on the door that said, Library Closed for Health-Related Emergency. The building stank to high heaven, and I knew exactly what had happened. The bag had burst. Uh, Our regional director basically banned the guy from the library for... As far as I know, he's still banned from the library, but that was the single most memorable day at the public library I ever had. Can you still eat Chinese food? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty much a glutton, so that's one benefit of having that particular deadly sin. (laughs) Uh, Well, I I mentioned that my wife works here at the library at Central, too, and she she had a library crisis last week, but it did not involve exploding colostomy bags. Thank God. Um, it, it, was, <laughs> it was computer related, however. Uh, they weren't working properly. I mean, the books still worked fine, of course. Um, so, so I would have had no complaints, but apparently there were many complaints. Um, and I've, uh, I mean, the, the story that you tell, Nathan, uh, really hits home to me because I've noticed 
you know, in that the when I went to the Athens, Georgia Public Library, or even even here in McPherson, um, that there are far more library patrons surfing the internet than there are than they are browsing among among the shelves. Um, which am I a curmudgeon to resent these computers? Uh, do I need to learn to be cool with libraries changing? And I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna direct this question to you, Michael, because because I think maybe you might confirm my my tendency to curmudgeonliness here. I suspect <laughs> I suspect libraries would be in a lot of trouble if they didn't offer free internet. I suspect they would lose more than half of their patrons. Maybe Nathan can uh, maybe Nathan can re- respond to that. But um, I can I that without delay. Um, the the internet is something libraries added to stay alive and. You can resent the social movement that made made that happen, but I don't think you can resent the libraries putting it in there. Uh, uh. The, the 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 truth of the matter is that Amazon.com has made libraries obsolete for much of the middle class because it is very easy to get very cheap books now. Mm-hmm. Um, besides that. You, you know, Wikipedia has made it where you people people don't really look things up in books anymore. Uh, the the internet in general has made it where books are not as popular as they once were, the, and the, the library, rather than be just a total victim of this social movement, has wisely hitched their wagon to the to the computer star. Now that's not all bad, right? I mean, one of the uh, one of one of the great things about the internet is that. You don't have to use Dewey Decimal cards anymore. You can look up, uh, you you can look up the catalog on the computer instead of, instead of going through the giant filing cabinet with the cards. That's true. But yeah, I. Uh, the internet is is simultaneously the killer of libraries and their only salvation. Mm. That's best I can tell. Yeah, I wouldn't say their only salvation. I'd say, Michael, that another trend among public libraries, at least, is, and this is a good trend, is that they have really started gearing their operations towards becoming an educational facility for young children, especially the young children of homeschooling families. Uh, One of the things that really defines the Bogart Library is that we have one of the strongest children's programs in the region. And for that reason, I mean, a lot of times we will actually have, or we would, obviously I haven't worked there for about three years now, but we would have more visitors per week than the much larger Watkinsville Library. Sometimes we would even rival the Athens Library simply because our children's program was so strong. Suck it, Watkinsville. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's liable to misconstrue. To to, to, to what degree do you think libraries are for children? I think that public libraries right now are one of the great places for children. And like I said, it's definitely a redefinition of the public library. You know, this is not the New York public library that you're describing, Michael. Right. It's definitely something, you know, a very different phenomenon. I personally think it's great, uh, largely sure. because I have young kids of my own. And and you don't you want to buy $8,000 worth of children's books. Well, that, and I also don't want to pay lots of money to go to a lot of educational programs put on by the University of Georgia, put on by, you know, other local organizations, when I can go down to the Bogart Library and get really a top-notch educational fun program for my kids to participate in that I don't have to pay for up front. But you know the um the Lilburn Public Library did a lot of stuff like that even when I was a kid. So I mean th- this is and I was a kid before the internet. So I mean this is a this is a movement that was that, that must have started before the internet kind of wrecked business. Oh, absolutely. And I and I think, you know, what you pointed to earlier the massive cost of books is really what made public libraries in the New York Public Library mold intelligible. Right. right? When the big chains, Books a Million, Borders, may you rest in peace, and Barnes and Noble come along, you know, it becomes a lot less expensive to develop a personal collection of books. Obviously it becomes even less expensive in the internet era, but you know, I think that was really the time when libraries started to ramp up the children's programs and reinvent themselves as community centers more than places where people go to 
look at books because they can't afford to buy their own. Mm. And, that, and, that, and that's a good strategic move too. Um, I mean, I continue to love libraries. Um, you know, a, a good library is for me is an aesthetically pleasing experience. It's yes. comforting. It's like it's like you know architectural comfort food. Um, well, there's that there's that, that line, and that's in, because uh, of my because of my childhood experiences. There's that line so. in Bella's Dangling Man about how he, he he's buying books faster than he can read them because he feels comforted just being surrounded by them. Right, right. I I think that's a real thing, and you know, you know, getting getting the young into libraries, um, you know, maybe maybe that helps build a next generation of patronage that is interested in browsing among the shelves. Oh, sure, sure. And, you know, to, to return to your original question, David, about the Internet, it is without a doubt the lifeblood of small small libraries like Bogart. Uh, it's the reason that people come in. And, frankly, given that access to the Internet still has a cost barrier to it, I think that that in itself is a good social function. So, in other words, you know, families who don't have the $50 a month to pay for home Internet service can still get to their kids' grades online through the school website. They yeah. can do those sorts of things. They can file their taxes online. They can order they can, their Russian bride. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and you know. The <laughs> Building families. Well, yeah, sort you know. Homeless people of. have a place to go to the bathroom. And that, and that is also a good social function. Because I've walked through the streets of Athens, Georgia. I just love public institutions in general, so I like libraries, I like the post office, I like public transportation. I mean, the thought, I don't go to the library, but a thought of a world where they don't exist fills me with deep sadness. I know the Philadelphia Public Library was in trouble last year, and I was worried, even though I don't live in Philadelphia, and even if I did, I don't know if I would go there. So I'm not sure if that makes me a hypocrite, or someone who's overly nostalgic, or what. Well, I, I don't know. I, it it, it makes it makes sense to me um, because you know I love you know let's let's just say my favorite animal in the world is tigers. I do love tigers; they're pretty awesome. But I don't spend all of my time at zoos looking at them. But if I found out that I couldn't do so anymore, um, you know, you know, like when I found out that you know at the Birmingham Zoo they no longer had elephants. The elephant died, and they couldn't afford to get another one. I, I think they, I think they have them again, David. When I, when we were there last year, they were building a new enclosure for them. Oh, thank God! Anyway, I, I, many many's the time that I looked at those elephants, and so even though I didn't go see them all the time, knowing they were there was comforting. Uh, I know that this so weekend I'm going to go to the Waconia Public Library because they're having a book sale. Ah, uh, probably so they can make make way for a uh, make your own Sunday bar. <laughs> or, or, or whatever. Not uh, now that that's another misconception because people always came into our library and said, "Why don't you have this? Why don't you have that? You know, don't you ever buy any new books?" And the answer, of course, is, as state budgets have fallen here during this recession, libraries are always the first thing to get hit. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, they're selling their old books first of all to make space for the new Nora Roberts and Judith McNaught, but also because they really do need the cash. Yeah. Well, they will get some of mine this weekend. Very good. I also want to note, and I don't know why I didn't say this, David, when you asked the first question, on another autobiographical note, my mother was a an assistant children's librarian there in Plainfield, Indiana, for several years. She was actually employed by the library before I was. Uh, so, hi, Mom. Cool. Well, I, I will confess that, you know, hey, we, we, we've... We've we've been hypocrites in in other ways this 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 particular time loving libraries and at least in in my case not necessarily going into the local public one very frequently but um, I, I'm also going to have to own up to being a hypocrite specifically in my decrying of the techno technological encroachment on my on my uh, you know archetypal library in my head. Um, because these days, some of my favorite libraries are virtual. Um, so, Nathan, uh, th this this seems like a new set of material and social conditions. Um, if my library is on the internet, 
what does that do to my library experience? And is this what is this what libraries in the future are going to look like? Really, really sweet databases. Well, I am torn about this. When I got the show notes, I, I had two entirely contradictory answers ready to look, to deliver. So I'll give you a confused muddle of the two. <laughs> uh, first of all, I think that. Certainly, there is money to be made right now managing databases. Uh, one of the things about academic publishing is that these journals are immensely expensive. So if they offer a digital version of their collection for a discount, a lot of libraries, Emanuel Colleges included, are going to jump at that opportunity. And in fact, Emanuel College this year got to the point where our collection is actually half physical books in the building and half digital subscription services. Uh, so, I mean, we are at that 50% point now, even at our small Christian liberal arts college. On the other hand, I also think that, you know, as the so-called education bubble that people have been writing about for the last decade or so gets closer and closer to bursting, I have to think that publication, academic publication, is going to be one of the things that takes a hit. So I don't want to say that these databases are the future because it very well could be that academic journals, which after all are generally produced for CV lines rather than for pay, the contributors are writing them so they can, writing articles for them so they can get tenure, not for money. Uh, people who edit them, again, doing them for institutional service credit, uh, again, so they can get promoted. There's no money involved. Uh, at some point, people are going to stop, or let me put it this way, the demand for very, very expensive product produced entirely at the cost of the contributors to the product is going to wane. Uh, so, I mean, I, you know, my apprehensions about predicting the future are especially acute when it comes to the future of digital libraries. I mean, I, I could very easily imagine a future where the professors of the world have a sort of, you know, Hegelian-style revolution and say, all right, we're just going to abandon the four-pay journals and we're going to set up our own digital consortiums like the Christian Humanist Journal. Uh, I could also imagine a future where, you know, the established journals establish an even stronger stranglehold on the tenure process. I don't know which one's going to happen, but I think both of them are easily conceivable from the conditions we find ourselves in at the moment. Mm. Uh, Michael, to, to save me from waxing further apocalyptic, what do you think about this question? I think that whatever the Internet has done to public libraries, it has been a godsend to libraries at small colleges like the ones we all teach at. There has never been a better time to be a scholar at a school like Crown or like, like Central or like Emanuel because of ebooks, mm. so I think I, I don't know the percentages, and I'm not going to guess, but a, a substantial percentage of the books we have access to at Crown are ebooks. Now I don't like ebooks; I, I I can't read particularly well on a screen. On the other hand, I recognize that it you know adds a third to to the to the size of our library. Uh, the internet has made interlibrary loan much easier. Um, the the internet has made Things like JSTOR possible. JSTOR, as I'm sure everybody who's listening who does anything with the humanities knows, JSTOR is your best friend when, mm -hmm. when, you, when, you, when you do academic research. Because also you just, immensely expensive. And yeah. worth, worth every penny. I use, I use JSTOR every week. I, I don't think a week has gone by in the last three years. Maybe five years I haven't used JSTOR. Um, so, yeah, I mean... It's as it is in a lot of areas. The internet ends up being a, a big leveler for things like this. Mm. On, on the other hand, uh, things like JSTOR also mean that schools like University of Nebraska Omaha, where I got my master's degree, are getting rid of all their actual print journals. They just threw them in the dumpster. They wouldn't even give them to the various departments that asked for them. Wow. So we all, of course, you know, people from the departments all went and got in the dumpster and pulled the journals out. Dumpster diving professors. But they, they literally got rid of their journal section to put in a coffee bar. Mm. And, and uh, so, pathetic. So once again, I'm of two minds about the internet. <laughs> because 
Yeah. Once again, I, I don't read particularly well on the internet. I'm that that's a generational divide that I am at the very end of. I think because I think people just a few years mm-hmm. younger than me don't have a problem reading on a screen, but I can't do it. Yeah. I know Nathan also uses his Kindle uh, because so, he's sleeping with the enemy. So, Sony reader, actually, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, one of the things that those devices don't do very well yet is PDF. So I mean, JSTOR becomes a chore when you're using mm-hmm. devices. That's why it's nice I, I to be re- at a school where you can just print them out. Yeah, I read it. I read Kindle. Uh, I read PDFs on my Kindle. Um, okay, so the Kindle does that well. See, I, I bought my the iPad e-reader. Does it well. I, I was a giant geek. I bought my e-reader back in 2008 when Sony was the only company manufacturing them. You were the first person right. I knew to have one. Oh yeah, and, and and I'll tell you exactly why I got one because I realized that I could get the Summa Theologica for free, and it would be cheaper to buy a Sony reader than it would to be to buy the five-volume set, you know, published by the Order of Saint Dominic. Mm-hmm. Well, precisely. Uh, uh, well, I mean, we, we've been talking about a lot of a lot about the material conditions that make libraries possible. But I've been thinking a lot lately about the material conditions that make me as a scholar possible. Um, and part of that is uh, m- m- part of my material condition right now is not a heck of a lot of disposable income. Um, but uh, thanks to things like uh, well, Google Books. Um, I have access to uh, the Church Fathers. I have a Kindle right now with probably about 25 to 30 volumes of the Church Fathers sitting oh, on there. Use, that, that, and I use it for my dissertation. That, that's the other thing I wanted to say. Crown has five Kindles they give to students. And if there's a book the student wants that they don't have in the library, they will buy it from Amazon and put it on the Kindle and rent it out to the student. So the yeah. library is infinitely expanding without expanding any any in space, and you know, the you can you can look up what Crown looks like on the internet. It is one big building, and the and the top floor is the library. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know there is a limited amount of space for books, but the 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 Kindles they have mean they can add books as much as they want at reader at a lender or Lindy renter request and and uh, do it immediately. So, yeah. I mean, it's a good time to be. It's a good time to be at a scholar in a smaller school. That is for sure. Yeah, and and you know, beyond that, I mean, uh, have have you guys ever used the CC uh, CCEL? I, I know um, it exists, but I don't use it because I can't. I, I don't. Re- I, I would never be able to read something that complicated on a screen. Right. Yeah, I've actually converted some CCEL files into TXT files and put them on my Sony reader. So yeah, I use that a fair bit. Yeah. Plus, I like well, touching if, the pages. Yeah, I I I, I do too, Michael. I, I I do too, but I can't afford to buy that however many volume set of the anti Nicene and post Nicene fathers. Sure. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I can get it for free. Um, and, and the and, other and the other to, nice thing about being a scholar this day and age is very few people have to use microfiche. Oh yes. Microfiche. Mike, if you've never used microfiche, listener, you are uh, you are lucky. It is it is a little like being on the world's most boring roller coaster. It's all the nausea with with uh, with none of the fun. Yeah, <laughs> I, I am not sad that dinosaur has wandered into the tar pit. I'm, <laughs> frank, I'm, I'm sure somebody is right because the, I, mean, the, I, I am just slightly only because the ability to navigate microfilm and microfiche was a sort of mark of distinction back when I was a library employee. <laughs> so, so, so your priesthood has fallen apart, is what you're telling me. Because, because oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I am the best horse and buggy driver in town. Yeah, yeah. I was, about, I was about to say, yes, there was once a culture in which being the guy who could make the best barrel, um, that was prestigious, and now... Only, yeah. in, Co- only in Cooperstown. <laughs> <laughs> uh. No, that was an etymology joke. I get behind that. That 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 was that was good. Um, uh, there's etymology jokes, and then there's bad puns. Well, okay. And then there's True. a great deal of crossover. To be fair, that that was both an etymology <laughs> joke and a bad pun. Nice. Right. Anyway, well, uh, any 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 thoughts on libraries? Want to leave our readers or readers? Ha, listeners with or. Uh, do you think we just about milked this topic for what we can get out of it right now? 
And you got a meeting to go to, Nathan. I do here in just a little bit, but I will say, just kind of as a closing thought, that I think that what we think of as the library experience, uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna ring the same bell that I ring about every other episode, is always a historically contingent thing. Uh, one of the things that I won't tell you to stop being anxious about it because we live in history, we are historical beings. Uh, one of the things I won't tell you is not to worry about it. I will say, though, that we probably shouldn't come down too hard on the youngsters for lacking our anxiety. Uh, fact of the matter is, even the Amazon Kindle, as David just told me, this is something else I learned today other than the Ben Franklin thing, uh, just as the Amazon Kindle can now do PDFs where a mere three years ago e-readers could not, uh, likewise, you know the ex the experience of researching a common collection of texts is going to be a different experience for the folks who are junior high students right now than it was for folks like me who were junior high students in the late 80s. That's all right. I'm still not going to like it very much, but ultimately I probably shouldn't pass moral judgment on them because they are not lovers of the stacks as I am. Michael, would you would you have any parting thought? No, you're you're right about that. Although I'm still going to pass moral judgment on them because that's what I'm. <laughs> well, I I imagine you know there there was some Sumerian back in the day who was disgruntled about this newfangled parchment thing because it just didn't have the dignity of a clay tablet. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> well, and and beyond that, I mean, I'm teaching I'm teaching the third part of the Phaedrus in class today. And Socrates would be down on the clay tablet because you can't argue with it. So it's <laughs> we shouldn't be writing anything down or having any kind of library. But, you know, cuneiform just has a certain gravitas to it. Yes, yes, it's a noble script. All right, well, what are we doing next week? Well, David, we are going to finally do our long-promised, long-threatened, long-dreaded Christian right versus Christian left episode. So uh, here comes our political episode for the year. This is when Grubbs and I usually get into a fight. So, so if that's the sort of thing you're interested in, next week is the week to, uh, to tune in. Right, oh. to fight, and I'm over in the corner trying in vain to offend everybody. <laughs> well, we Eventually have you're just going to start yelling out ethnic slurs. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, uh, you, you heard it here first. Next week we shall be argumentative and/or um, offensive and/or pr provocative. I guess that's what we're going to say. Um, so tune in then, and thank you for tuning in this time too. Um, if you want to leave any comments uh, about this episode, any fond memories of libraries past or present, or uh, if you think our curmudgeonliness is just far too backward. Um, let us you know. You love my um, profession. Think we're we're true Philistines for not not missing it. If you think uh, those two are Philistines, I'm the microfiche man. <laughs> if you, you would can... like to challenge Nathan Gilmore to a microfiche reading contest, <laughs> I'd watch that. Um, you can leave comments on the show notes when they post on our blog, uh, ChristianHumanist dot uh, org. Um, or you can send us an email, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. So, in the meanwhile, um, I wish every single one of you the grandest of all the weeks. And I leave you with the words of Martin Luther, to let your sin be strong, but to let your faith be stronger. Walk across the courtyard Towards the library I can hear the insects buzz and the leaves Neath my feet Ramble up the stairwell Into the hall of books Since we got the interweb These hardly get used Duck into the men's room Coming through my head when God gave us mirrors, he had no idea Looking for a lesson in the periodical 
There I spy you listening to the AM radio Karen of the Carpenters Singing in the rain Another lovely victim of the mirror's evil way It's not like you're not trying With a pencil in your hand To defy the beauty the good Lord put in there Simple little bookworm Buried underneath Is the sexiest librarian Take off those glasses and Let down your hair for me So I watch you through the bouquet Imagining a scene You and I at dinner Spending time in the sleep And what then would I say to you Lying there in bed These words were the kiss I would play In your head What is it inside our head That makes us do the opposite Makes us do the opposite Of what's right for us Everything to be great And everything to be good If everybody gave Like everybody could Sweetest little bookworm Hidden underneath Is the sexiest librarian Take off those glasses and let down your hair for me Take off those glasses and let down your hair for me Simple little beauty Heaven in your breath Simplest of pleasures, the world at its best.